All right then, am I going to start again? Oh, I'll start. Oh, yeah. right. okay. Ooh. Ooh. Are you leaving that in? <laughs> <laughs> Alexa, play the latest episode of the All Things Java podcast. Now, at this point, Alexa will probably complain and say it can't find it because I've not got that word nearly exactly right. Welcome to episode nine of All Things Java. I'm Matt Greencroft. I'm Richard Chesterwood. And this week, I've been playing with Alexa to try and get her to play this flipping podcast. I hope flipping isn't considered a rude word. And you're and showing off about it. I spent a good week trying to get it to play the podcast and had no success. And then you had it for about an hour. So can I now apologise? I've said the word, I'm going to have to say it again, Alexa, a few times. So anyone who's got an echo will, I imagine now, have it going mad saying all sorts of things. Because every time we say that word, it wakes up yeah. and says things. And even I've been watching something on TV this week and my echo's next to my TV. And they keep saying the word Alexis and it, it, it kicks in. Right. It's so annoying. Anyway. Yeah. It turns out if you get the phrasing exactly right, it can play it. You have to say, obviously the opening word, play the latest episode. If you don't say latest, it doesn't do it. I don't know why. Yeah. Of the All Things Java podcast. But don't say from tune in. If you say that, it doesn't work either. Right. And yet when it finds it, it says playing the latest All Things Java episode from tune in. Go figure. I don't understand Amazon, but I there you go. I wonder if there might be some metadata that we have to put into the XML that we, we put putting for the podcast to give it clues as to which to play so maybe we'll have a look into that anyway if you're listening to us whether or not you're on an amazon device or a google device or any of the other these smart home devices thank you for listening and welcome to this episode so we're on episode nine then and we thought we, we picked a random topic for this one which was I, I just plucked the uml out of midair which isn't i mean we are strictly a theoretically we are a java podcast JVM podcast or Java? JVM, yeah, of course, yeah. Full stack JVM. Now, UML is certainly not Java, it's not JVM, but it's related. Well, it, it's something that good programmers, no matter what, well, we, mm. we might talk about no matter what language, but certainly good, good JVM programmers probably should have in their armour. Is that too sweeping a statement? I don't. That's a, that's a good. That's a good place to start. I reckon there'll be a lot of good Java developers who don't use UML. I mean, I don't use. I'm not saying I'm a good Java developer, but I, <laughs> I do not use UML on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't think you do either. No, but then you're not building applications that are solving some kind of business problem on a day-to-day -day basis for a third party where you're not also the business. Mm. Um, and certainly, where I think you'd expect to see it is where you've got a team of people who are designing a project to solve a particular problem and they've got to be, I don't want to jump too far into this, into what, you know, it is, but it's, it's going to be used in certain environments. Right. Or I would expect it to be where yes. you are doing documentation, I guess, in advance of uh, writing code, maybe. That will, that will lead to some interesting discussions then. Yeah. Um, I, I, I guess I think you, you, you're right. It's something that you've probably if, if you've got a few years' experience, you should have you should have it in your armoury, yeah. Did you say armoury? It should be in your toolbox. Yes. I said armour, I think, but armor. anyway. <laughs> it's probably something you should have in your toolbox, I guess. It's, um, it's a funny topic, this, because it's fallen off my radar recently. As you said, we work in different... in different areas now. We, we're yes. not working on great big systems anymore. And actually, that's a really interesting point because where, well, we'll get on to, but let's remember this. How does UML or does UML even have a role if what you're working on is not great big systems, given the world's moving to yeah. the microservice or, or even if it is. So, yeah, yeah, good. That's perfect. So should we, let's take a few steps back then. And I guess there's going to be people listening to this who don't know UML and would like, to, so we that should be our starting point. What's UML? So... Let's talk about, if we can, if you, if you agree, the challenge of communication generally, no, right? right? Sorry, one of my little <laughs> topics, I'm sorry. When I started in computer programming in, in a professional way, so working for a bank actually at the time in their IT department, which I don't want to give my age away, but that would have been back in the mid to late 90s. <laughs> day mid to late 90s there was this role of programmer and that was my role and there was this role of analyst yes. and there were lots of analysts and their job was to interpret what the what we called business wanted what was the business logic that needed to be implemented in code and act if you like as translator between us the programmer and the business person who didn't so really know they all working away in some dungeon 
That's with right. No windows. You, all you know, very bad personal hygiene. <laughs> you wouldn't dare let your programmers speak to the business people. Absolutely, they talk a completely different language. So you have these intermediaries, the business analysts. Exactly, and <laughs> you know the world's moved on since then. I mean, oh, there, there yeah. was a time when you had the analyst programmer, and they decided that one person could do both sides of that job. Yes, that and was very much in vogue. I think when we when. Roughly at the time when we started, um, when I was applying for my first jobs, it was all analyst programmer, analyst programmer. Yes. Everywhere you looked. And that's interesting because working at a bank, it was obviously a lot more traditional. And they yes. certainly didn't they have that. that. Yes. Yeah. And it, it transitioned to that while I was there. And all of a sudden I became an analyst programmer because the jobs changed. Um, why is that? Why did, why did things change? I think that... There was, and this didn't, the change didn't necessarily solve the problem, but there was certainly this experience of something goes wrong in that step of communication, meaning that what the programmer thinks they need to do isn't what the business wanted, and therefore what they delivered didn't match the requirement. And so you ended up delivering systems that either were riddled with bugs because they didn't cover what turned out to be regular use cases, but they thought would be edge cases or not even considered, mm -hmm. or even uh, didn't really understand the, the user experience. So they had no concept of uh, usability, that kind of thing. So yeah. the thinking was, if you get the developer closer to the business and closer to the business problem that you're trying to solve, then you um, end up hopefully with an application that's more likely to do the job. Just out of interest in this old model, the, so the analyst has gathered requirements with the business. In what form did they communicate with the developers? They just give them a Word document. That Absolutely. So you'd get a... Um, <laughs> I remember it was not just a Word document. It was a massive Word document yeah. that had to be written in a certain way. So you had headlines that they had to fill in the gap. So they couldn't just freeform write, this is what the people need. You had to... Um, come up and bear in mind, this is all done with project proposals. I'm doing that sort of thing with my fingers to make like inverted commas. So you, you had to cost up. So they had to cost up how much time and, you know, therefore financial cost of the business it would be to develop this system. Um, so the first step would be they talk to you as the programmer and say, so they'd be the sorry, they wouldn't talk to you, apologies. They'd produce a two-page Word document that summarised the requirements in such a way as to allow you to cost it up. So you didn't really get the requirements. Okay. <laughs> uh, it was all a bit bonkers, but there you go. And then, um, sorry, bonkers is one of my favourite words. And then, um, yeah, the next step would be you'd get a 20-page Word document with the project details outlined, of which maybe two pages would be the real requirements. Yeah. But it wow. never answered the questions you had. So there was no real built-in part of that process to go back and ask questions and clarify sure. and yeah. we had um, so I was working <laughs> in defense about the same time so we had the same thing but just scaled up I think so we had um, we had a requirements document which was 14 volumes <laughs> each of which was very very thick and it was just full of I can't remember if there were any pictures in at all there may have been a few diagrams but generally it was just a great long sequence of the system shall blah 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 the system shall the si and wherever there was a the system shall that was a contractual requirement because they, they all these have been signed off yes. so we had to deliver all of those things and if we didn't deliver them we'd broken the contract <laughs> these documents were in years ago. yes uh, absolutely bonkers <laughs> i do remember I, I, I was asked at one point to write it was um a system that was used, actually, I think we've used something like this on one of our case studies, uh, a much more cut down version. It was a system that was used to calculate the average price of a house in different parts okay. of the country. And one of the issues with that is something called seasonal adjustment. So if you're selling your property, there are times of the year when properties go up in value and times when they go yes. down in value. No one wants to move on Christmas Day. Everyone wants to move in the middle of the summer as a general principle. Okay. So they, they took... The, the, the sales of houses over the year and you had to do this process to smooth them out and so my job was to write the seasonal adjustment process wow. and I got this <laughs> 10 page and I remember it exactly it was a 10 page requirements document of which the only bit that was important was a single line which said you need to you need to, the, the system must use the x11 arima 
calculation. So I went off and looked up and I managed to get a book on X11 Arima, which is the wow. most complicated and in-depth step of, it's something like 20 steps of different adjustments and calculations. Now, had they provided me with that, I don't know what to do. Okay. There was one line in this document that was of any use wow. and it required me to spend weeks learning what X11 Arima was. I it was horrendous. bouncing out of bed in the morning to get into work. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so, so communication has always been a problem yes. and UML was one of the, well, I always saw UML as being one of the ways to try and bridge that communication gap between developers and business people. Okay. Um, can I talk about birds? That, that sorry, <laughs> birds of the flapping variety. Yeah. Quite a while ago, Richard and I went to a, a talk, I think it was in Manchester, one of these Java meetup groups, and a guy gave this talk all about the way people think. Yeah. Um, and so what he said was, if you imagine that you're at home in the evening and you get a knock on your front door and there's a Martian, and he says, I've just landed on Earth, I'm trying to understand how the Earth words works, can you explain to me what a bird is? And he said that depending on the way you think, you will answer that question in a different way. So if you are of the science, technology, mathematical type viewpoint, you'll start saying, yes, they have wings and they have feathers and they can fly and they eat insects. And what you're doing is you're explaining it, he said, by categorization. So you're actually describing the attributes of a bird. Okay. So you can differentiate dip between different birds by, for example, um, what colour are their feathers, what shape is their body, what kind of insects do they eat? And you can use these attributes to define different birds. Mm. And he said, and other types of people would say, yes, and they pull out a picture of a bird or they might point up at the sky or a tree and say there's one up there. So they're doing that by example. Exactly. And I think what he was trying to say is that in, a, in if we now make this relevant, that business people think by example and techie people think by categorization. Okay. And so... I the, have forgotten everything all of that. about that talk, Okay. Which obviously had a big impression of me. Yeah, yeah that, that at the time. It sense. made sense to me. And bear in mind, I'd done a bit of study after my degree about technical communication. So this all sort of, I quite liked his analogy. So the, the idea here is that you're trying to bridge the gap between people who think purely in the idea of how do you categorise, how do you give something attributes, which is the way the traditional, at least OO programmer would think, mm -hmm. and the business person who's thinking in terms of pictures, in terms of customer interaction, a completely different mindset. Mm. Um, and to me, UML has the ability to help bridge that communication gap. Okay. So let's maybe talk a bit about the history of UML, where it came from. Yeah, it has quite a long, I mean, there has been a long battle, really. I've not heard a lot about this in the last 10 years, maybe, but from maybe the 1970s onwards, there's been this long battle in software development to come up with some kind of process that we can follow, uh, some kind of method or system that we can mechanically follow to take us from an initial idea to a running system that's been delivered to a customer. And uh, I think it was referred to as the process wars, where everybody was coming up with their own there's a lot of terminology here, but I'm just going to call it a process, a process for developing software. And uh, so, you know, to check any any library, and, and, you know, and the, 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 there's literally dozens of them in history, like Schleiermeller and Booch. Booch had his own method, and um, Objectory was another one, and I'm racking my brains to think of them. Uh, at, in, in my first job, we used the Jackson method, which is invented by a guy called Michael Jackson, not the <laughs> Michael Jackson, but the uh, software engineer. And, and I think that that's, that's pretty much what it was like. You had individuals who had a great big idea of this is how we could develop software, and they develop a process, and they try to make it successful. And you, you had like dozens of these all competing. And it wasn't very satisfactory. So uh, the, the, the UML dates back to the mid-1990s, I think, mid-1990s. And it was an industry effort to um, pull together all of those competing ideas and put them all under a single umbrella. And, and the hope was the entire industry would un unify behind this. And it was the object management group that, that led the effort. 
which I don't know how relevant they are today, this object management group. They were the group of people who'd come up with CORBA, which was, of the 1990s, a very popular, at the time, remoting technology, completely superseded now by REST and SOAP and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I don't quite know what sort of gave that committee the right to do this. They obviously just had some powerful industry people on that committee, IBM and those sorts of people. Um, and so, so they put together a proposal. Can we get together and come up with a unified way of doing software? That's where it all started. And it led to UML, which isn't actually what I've just been describing, because UML is not a process, it's not a method. It's just a collection of pictures, really, collection of diagrams. I'm not sure we've even said it stands for Unified Modeling Language. Correct. So it's a language for modeling systems, a way yeah, of, uh, yeah. Or, yeah, that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, I mean, language, I'm not even sure what that means. But yeah, it's definitely pictures, a pictorial type language. A language in the sense that there's the symbols and there's a grammar. So, you know, yes. the symbols mean something when you connect them together. And uh, I think that's the first thing to say about UML, though. I think people expected it to be a unified process, a unified way of building the software. And that turned out to be just far too hard to solve. It's still not a solved problem. We'll talk a bit about that and, and what mm. came out of that. There was a unified process that sort of emerged out of it. But the actual successful thing, I think, was the, the unified modeling language. Because really, it doesn't say in there how to develop software. Except it's very object-oriented, slanted. There's a lot of yes. OO concepts in there. But it certainly doesn't say, this diagram in UML will enable you to gather requirements, for example. No, but it's sort of doing the opposite, is that if you've gathered your requirements, this diagram enables you to document them in a way that hopefully everybody reading the document has the same understanding and is a comprehensive way of documenting something quite quickly. I've got problems with what you said there, but I can't quite, I can't quite process them fast enough, so it might come out in the discussion. I think, I think one of the problems with the, the UML was that it was, it, yes, that what you've just described is one of the things that is a byproduct of, of UML. It's one of the results of using UML. I don't think that's what they had in mind. I think that's what I have the problem with. Okay. There wasn't this, uh, I don't think anyway, you have to talk to the original, the people on the on, on the committee, uh, I think they were they were looking for a way of, uh, as I say, a way of coming up with a full process, a full end-to-end -end process. That at the end of it, you get generated code, right? You know, that kind of thing. Um, this idea of it being a communication tool. I guess some of the people on the committee thought that, but others on the committee had different ideas. Yeah, I can, now you've said that, though, I can sort of picture that you could be, in theory, creating a diagram, which you then press a button and it spits out... Exactly. Some of the people... So um, there was a, a method that predated UML called Schleyer-Meller, which I had a little bit of experience in. And I met the guy, uh, Stephen Meller, at a, at a conference and got talking to him a bit. And it was interesting to see what his... his you could see he had an absolute vision of software development, which was exactly what you've just described. You build a picture build a model, and then let the computer create the code from the model. Why do we have programmers sat in that dark dungeon converting the requirements into lines of executable code? You can get a computer to do that. And forgive me if I've, I've misinterpreted his intentions, but that, that was what I thought at the time. And he was on, I think he, he fed his ideas into UML as well. So... Um, We'll talk about that. There is an executable UML. Oh, okay. We'll come to that a little bit later. But the point of that discussion is that I think UML meant a lot of things to a lot of different people. And it was really up to you as a project to interpret what you want to get out of it. And if, if you've got that situation where you've got analysts and developers and you want to use it as something to bridge the gap, great. Fill your boots. Other people saw it as this is a way we can document our designs and we'll have a perfect design and it will match exactly what the code is is going to be and that kind of thing. So I, I remember, Richard, first 
know, first even hearing about UML from you, and you at the time were working for a training company and you had written effectively a book about UML. <laughs> yes. But what was your customer at the time who asked for that course? What were they wanting to, why were they wanting it? Do you remember that? We did it, uh, I did it with a team of people and we did it quite organically. We didn't have a specific customer, but we were working for a company and we th- we, we hated the way, we were young and arrogant, by the way. I mean, <laughs> we were wrong in many, in many cases um, because we, 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 lacked, we lacked the experience to understand that we, we were just... We thought that the company we were working with was a very big, complex project and we thought they were doing things all wrong. And um, a more, it, we, we, we were basically advocating a more agile approach. It wasn't called agile then, but that's basically what we were saying. Um, we were drowned by the complexity in that project. And I think everybody else on the project, bar a few people with brains the sizes of planets, most people were drowning in the complexity of that project. And our argument was, look, we, we could do this better. What we need to do is, rather than having... So, so they were using a waterfall. That was the, the fundamental problem. And the waterfall was years and years long. So there were people on this project who had never seen the system run. Just, just because there might be people who are new to development, have only just started, and they're not familiar with waterfall, mm-hmm. just as a very basic thread, if there is anyone out there who's wondering what is waterfall, just to explain waterfall, this was the idea that you start by documenting your project and you go through various stages of documentation, which are sort of steps down a waterfall, if you like. And then at the bottom, you finish documenting at different levels. So you start coding and you code as you move back up. And the idea is that there is a level of sign off. Uh, that so once you've documented for example this is how we're going to test that that at the very basic level that it works at a unit level you document all your unit tests if you like you do your coding and check they pass and then you can move up a level and say well so it was a very long process it effectively meant you did all your documentation at different steps then you started coding and years later and months later you know yeah. The whole, by which point the, what was required has changed. You finally delivered what the original thing wanted, but it was a very long process. Yeah. Uh, and very bureaucratic as well, yeah, I would it say. It doesn't work. But, um, <laughs> it does. but, but up until, you know, a few years ago, this was the accepted way of delivering big projects. It probably still is. It's, it's still... And that's one thing we, we, we lack in, in, in this industry is we don't have statistics and figures. I can't go to a website and say... Well, 43% of projects still use water. It doesn't exist, but my sense is it is still, it's still endemic. And you get, even get projects, we are agile. We do agile. We are agile here. <laughs> Ask a few questions, you'll find out what we do a waterfall, really. Uh, okay. Uh, it's a two-year <laughs> waterfall. It's not that big. Um, so, yeah, waterfall is a disaster because you, you touched on it there. That it, 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 It's a... It, it's an idea where people have looked at production lines in factories. If you're manufacturing a product, it, you, you, you have a long production line. At the start of the production line go, go in the raw products, the raw materials, and at the end you've got a complex car or whatever. And people in software have looked at that and thought, well, why can't we do that in software? Your raw materials are requirements going in at the start of the production line and at the end of the production line, out pops perfect working software. We must, from a management point of view, we must be able to do that in software. And that's kind of where the waterfall thinking is. So at the start, of, as you said, you, you do all the requirements first. The reasoning was if you just start coding, if you just start hacking away, you're going to end up with a load of spaghetti code that doesn't do what the customer wants to do. So we'll we'll put the brakes on, we'll just focus on the requirements, we'll uh, engineer the requirements until they're perfect and then sign them off and only then move to the next stage, which will be doing the design. Exactly what you've said there, so I'm just reiterating, but I'm reiterating just just prove it sounds... Well, you know, anyone would buy into that. If I was selling that to a manager, any, any, anyone with a brain would go, yeah, great. And, and you can sell it because you've got clear tick-off points at every point so you can say, we've achieved this milestone. Yeah. So Beautiful. project managers love it. Financial Beautiful. controllers yeah. love it. Stick it it fits. on a spreadsheet. 
Yeah. Oh, Gant, nice Gantt chart. Absolutely. Microsoft project. Absolutely. The problem is it doesn't work. And it doesn't <laughs> work because software isn't... The so, it's the soft in software that's the clue. We, in a software project, you are inventing something new. Every time you're inventing something new. Yeah. That sounds like a bit of a... I saw your face then go, really? Are you really inventing? Of course you are. If you're not, why are you doing it? If this already exists, we buy an off-the-shelf product. So when you said that, my face is doing that because when you talked about a production line, I suddenly thought it was picturing in my head, okay, so a car. Yes, I can see what you mean there is, but when you make a car, you are, for most of it, buying pre-constructed products and you're assembling together. Absolutely. And actually software... You're turning a handle and that car's already been invented and designed and pre-tested before you run the production line. Yes. That's the key missing piece. Yes. And software, yes, you're not doing that. You're having to come up with every single project is not using you know you're not, you're not simply taking classes from other frameworks and putting them together with no glue you're inventing the glue and that might be yeah. the, well that is the vast majority of, yeah. of the work yeah absolutely. absolutely so what happens in practice with the waterfall is let's say you've given yourself let's say it's a very big project we've got two years of requirements analysis <laughs> well you are i'll guarantee you're gonna you're gonna reach that milestone on time i'll guarantee yeah. it you're not gonna slip how can you slip because when you get to that deadline, you'll just sign the document off as done. Right, we understand the requirements. We've done two years. We must have got it right. And then you move on to the next stage. And then you, only then you realise all of your misunderstandings, all of the things you didn't, you just didn't even know about in the requirements documents suddenly come out later on. Or, or of course, by the time you start coding, those requirements have changed because yeah. the world's moved on. And that happens so often. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So... And this is why massive government projects in particular yes. often delivered or not delivered at all. Yes. And cost £20 billion. Pounds. I'm not thinking about a specific project there. £20 billion. Pounds. <laughs> £20 billion pounds of taxpayers' money. So that was the water. I can't remember what got us into the waterfall. Oh, you asked me what? how did I get into UML? Yes, yes. So we, we wanted to get this um, company agile. So we so we started writing material, um, and 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 that turned into a training course ultimately, which that business did take on board, and and a few projects around that business used that course and got, mm. got themselves up and running. But then eventually we all left and just took that course with us and founded a training business, and um, it became a course called UML Applied, and we couldn't sell it fast enough. I mean, everybody, it was just easy to sell. We didn't have Facebook then. We didn't need, need to advertise it. We were constantly busy going around the country doing UML training. It was, it, it's hard to get across now just how, this is mid-2000s, mid just how hot UML was. Which is interesting because, I mean, I remember saying, when I first came across it, which was, you, I remember you telling me about it, and then you gave me a copy of this book, it was a training manual, but book that you'd written. And I remember using, creating... Uh, must have been a use case diagram, I guess, in, in a document I was writing at the time for my work. I think by this point I was an analyst program as I was expected to do the two things. And what became obvious to me is that you could, with no knowledge of UML, you could look at a picture and get a sense of what it meant. Yes. So actually it was a fantastic way to say to the business, this is how I understand what your requirements are. And the business with no knowledge of UML could look at it and say, yes, I get that. That's yeah. right. Um, more likely they'd say you've got that wrong and yes and of that which is e even more valuable obviously yeah. to know so yes yes that's but i think i think the problem i had working with uml was i was you i was usually training developers rather than analysts yes and they would want to oh so how is what, how is this diagram specified? And what then they wanted to know all the little nuts and bolts of every little symbol and every little arrow and diamond that you could put on in UML. Yes. And UML was very heavily over-specified, I think. If you actually look in the spec of UML, it's full of stuff. And then when you get to the tools that implement UML, they haven't got half of the things that are in the spec. So you end up using a, a kind of a, a subset of UML, really, in practice. But often those developers that I was training will want to know everything that's in the spec and 
Oh, I'm not going to read the URL. Who reads the URL spec? You've mentioned the tools that implement URL. Am I detecting there might be a little bit of a rant coming on here? Because I know you had strong feelings about some of those tools, at least at one point. Do I? I'm not. I'm Less, leading, leading with You want a rant on every podcast, don't you? Well, it's, it's one of your trademarks, I think, isn't it? Have I a rant? I think I have a particular. So one, so one of the... I think it turned out to be one of the problems with UML was that it was heavily dominated by one vendor. So yes, the, the object management group was supposed to be a committee of lots of different players, but one company in particular saw quite an opportunity to dominate, dominate discussion. And they did, and they did a great job of it actually. The company was rational, who had a, quite a long history of... Um, I think Grady Booch was one of the founders of Rational, or he was certainly like employee number three or something. And by this time, he was their chief scientist. That's what I want to be a chief scientist. That's a great <laughs> job, doesn't it? I just imagine you do nothing all day and just turn up to conferences. And, <laughs> I, that's, that's what I want. Um, <laughs> I'm angling for a promotion, Matt. We need to get you a big whiteboard for your office if you're chief scientist, and you need to be able to write difficult mathematical formulae on it, oh, I think. Definitely. <laughs> um, so Rational had got Grady Booch, and they went and recruited two other people who had two of the biggest sort of competing... So Booch had his own method called Booch, and there was another guy called Ivar Jakobsen who had invented use cases and, and had built a method around use cases. And I think he was based in Sweden. And that had got a lot of traction in Sweden. I think he worked for Ericsson, possibly. And their software had, had been credited with you know, really making the company a massive success. And there was uh, the other guy, Jim Rumbaugh, I think, who had the... Was it the OMT technique? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But th they went and recruited those two guys. So by having those three people, suddenly Rational was seen as the, the industry thought leader at the time. So a lot of people actually thought Rational invented UML. I don't think they really did. But they were the, the most powerful. And, of course, what's in it for them is they sold tools. So they had a tool called Rational Rose, which at the time would have been the leading um, we called them case tools, didn't we? I'd almost forgotten that. Computer-aided software engineering tools. <laughs> so the idea was you had a tool like a CAD tool in engineering where you, you, you sat and drew pictures all day. And it could even generate code from those pictures. I don't know what you expect me to be ranting about. I'm sure I remember <laughs> you ranting once about Rational Rose and something. Oh, anyway. well, oh, I would have had a rant, but certainly um, <laughs> that software was of its time, definitely. It was very expensive. But then, you know, it's professional software for professional developers. So a few grand for a piece of software is not actually that much, is it? Um, <laughs> depends where you're coming from. And then I moved on to a tool called Enterprise Architects from a company called Spark Systems. We'll put a link in the show notes. I think they're still going. And they did a great job because they, they had a much better price point. If you're a contractor or something and you want your own copy of some software, they were great for that. But actually, their, their software was, I think, a lot better than the incumbent Rational. Right. They did a lovely job. So quite a lot of those case tools. And there's there's an open source one, which I think is called Argo UML, and that may have moved on since I last looked. But no, I'm sorry, there's no rant there. There's oh, nothing. okay, never mind. <laughs> so should we talk a bit about UML today in today's development environments? Um we can try. We're going to struggle here. And my story is that... Um, I was, I mean, I've sort of implied that I was quite a massive advocate for UML. And then something happened and I can't explain it. It was about 2007, 2000, so about 10 years ago now. I lost interest in it. I realised that I wasn't using it on a day-to-day -day basis. And I also realised that I had a problem with some of the companies I was working with who wanted to adopt UML, and I realised they were they were not using it for the purposes you've described. The business analysis part I love. If mm -hmm. you've got a problem, you don't know a domain, you, you're, you're in complete virgin territory, and you don't understand the scope of the problem, all that kind of thing. I think UML, even today, 
is a great tool for doing things. Build a use case diagram, a domain model, state charts I'm a huge fan of. We should do a course on this. We haven't quite worked out a good format to do it. Yes. And I think it would look dated because I don't see many people talking about UNL now, but I still, you know, I would absolutely do that today if we're in that situation. Then once you've got that understanding and you start developing the software, this is where I have a problem. Mm. I think most people still think of UNL as being a design tool. It's for capturing designs. Yes. And many of the projects I were working with were, were asking me, come and, come and get us started on UNL. We want to use it to specify our designs. And I hated that. And I don't think it works. And I was often getting the blame for things going wrong. Well, what do you mean by specify our designs? So I think this goes back to... And, and this is why I think the, this way of thinking is dated. Um, if you go back to the 1960s when you, you're coding an assembler or something, you obviously you look at assembly language, it's incomprehensible unless you've got a, a brain like a computer. Assembly, incomprehensible. So what do you have to do? Obviously, you've got to put loads of comments in assembly code. Yeah. By the way, can I, can I digress for a second? This is just lovely. I found... Just so I was browsing two days ago, I found a complete disassembly of Super Mario Brothers on the <laughs> N64. So if anybody's listening to this who hasn't, you know, no, has heard about assembly and doesn't really know what it what it's about and what it looked like, I'll put we'll put a link in the show notes. The complete disassembly of Super Mario Brothers. So, you know, a, a big hit game. Yes. Genre-defining game. It's been completely disassembled. And somebody has sat down over years, I assume, and commented every single line of that assembly. We're talking <laughs> hundreds of thousands of lines of assembly code. So you'll have a line that will say something like LDA, comma four. That's your, yes. that's the code. And the comment alongside will say something like initialize the number of stars available on this screen. I mean, how you would know, you couldn't know that just by looking at LDA, comma, for the comments yes. needed. Yes. Without that, it would be totally unmaintainable code. Yes. Uh, so I'll get back on point now. So that's just an example of what code looked like in the 60s. But even we get to quite close to the modern age, languages were not very expressive and they, you know, they look like computer code. So you needed to make things understandable and maintainable. You needed a level of abstraction on top of that. Yes. So projects needed, right, we'll do a design, we'll do a picture, which reflects what we're going to be coding up. And then when you code it, we, we want to be able to go back to this and we want to be able to look at that code in four years time and understand it. And to do that, we'll make sure that the diagram that we've drawn matches that code. Yes. Keep the two in sync. That was the idea. So, and, and as I say, if you're working in assembly or C or something like that, you can see the value of that. It's basically like having a comment, but yes. a graphical comment. Yes. And I found myself working with projects who even today, I don't mean today, I'm going back about 10 years. So we're working on Java and they were insisting that they needed that. And I, and I just came to realise that that's just total fool's gold. It's just... And it's interesting that, because as you were saying it, I was thinking, you know, in today's world, if you were starting a project today, again, in Java, first of all, obviously, if you're using test-driven development, you're, de you're determining what attributes a particular domain object needs on the fly as you go yeah. to meet the business requirement, not the other way around. And, and UML is exactly working the other way around. Absolutely. Um, so you know, if you go on to, a, 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 um, if you're working on a Java project on day one, you should be able to say, say, show me the tests and that will give me like a user guide to what's going on. Yes. Now I know it's not, not quite as beautiful as that. That's a, but it's interesting that when we write code, you know, we're relying really on names of variables, names of, yeah. of methods, tests, and yeah. very occasionally you'll put a comment in. And I, I mean, I tend to put a comment in when you've got like an if statement to say, this is unusual. You don't expect this else. And this is what it really means yeah. when you've got the else, because the else and doesn't make sense. And you can always refactor, wherever there's a comment, that's, that's a true. refactor. A refactor. You know, a new method or something like that. So. 
Yeah, um, it's not. It's not and, needed. So there'll be a lot of people, though. There'll be a lot of project managers. Yes. I can hear them now, and I can see them. I've spoke to them at the time. They would say, "Yeah, but there's always places where." Java code's not readable, so I want a design. A design, a, a pictorial design, mm. will will speak a lot more than the code can possibly speak. And what they're doing there is they're picking holes. In, you can't. Your Java's never going to be perfect enough to be. It's not going to read like English. No. You are going to need some experience of Java, and your unit tests. They're not user manuals. You can't. An average person can't just look at you um, unit tests and get everything. But I think they're a damn sight better than the pictures. But even if the pictures were perfect, you've got this killer problem, which is keeping the code and the design in sync. Is impossible. I don't care what any tool vendor. Now I'm ranting. Ah, good, I good. <laughs> no, whatever. So the idea was, oh, that's a solved problem. So you know, a salesman from Rational, circa 2002, would say, no, it's a solved problem. You do your design in Rational rows. And then you press a button, and it will blow out code skeletons for you. So you then you generate Java public class with curly brackets and put the methods in for you. You then go in and make changes to the code. And now here's the magic, and it was all called round trip engineering. Here's the magic. You press a button on the tool, and it'll modify the diagram. So the two are kept in sync. Yeah, problem solved. And of course, it's not problem solved because it doesn't work. The picture—you can't generate a picture from code. No, the no. diagram ends up looking messy. You've got to remember to press the button, and I'm sure there's somebody out there listening who's solved that problem and, and think it's not a problem. But I but you know, th th is this not trying to solve the wrong problem? Because what they're trying to do there, and you said this earlier, is they're trying to. Uh, automate the boilerplate code writing part of yeah. the code. And actually, that's not the valuable part sure. of what programmers do. So um, it's taking away the, you know, if they could find a way to do the more complex stuff, that would add real value. Add, yeah. Finding a way to automate the really basic stuff that takes not that much time out of your day anyway. Definitely. Uh, it's so I'll give you a, that, a chance to throw ooh. in, and it really is, you know, I can't, I can't put any meat on the bones here, but... There was a, again, it was circa 2006 here, there was a, a, a movement towards what they called executable UML. And the sort of thing Stephen Meller with Schleiermel have previously been trying to do is that you wouldn't have code anymore, you would just have the model. And, and their buzz phrase was, the code is the model. So you would do your pictures, and that would, and then you would press a button Yes. And you would generate code that you don't have to see. That's the crucial bit. So you wouldn't have to modify it or... Now, that exists and it is still out there. Model-driven architecture is the overarching term for it. It does exist and it's out there. And I'm assured there are projects who've made it work. So uh, this is probably along those lines. So I do remember working with some people who were using a a system they had purchased, and they were not programmers, they were mathematicians, and this was a statistical modeling system. Yes. So the idea was they wanted to run a, uh, a a series of statistical models, one after the other, where they could say, here's the parameters to, for example, a particular statistical distribution. I apologize to the people listening who've not got that mathematical background and quite know what I'm talking about here. But they, what the system did really was say, draw a flow chart where you say, here's your input data, yeah. flow through to this step, and they could draw, you know, different flow charts, put different parameters sure. in. And they effectively, yes, you could see behind the scenes that programmatic system was obviously generating some kind of code it could then run yeah. they were not interested in coding and allowed non-coders yeah. to do this kind of stuff so in a very specific domain specific domains that's yes. the important thing yeah and i think the idea with something like executable uml is yes you you have to as a as a project a company or whatever you build the generator for your domain yes and i, I never got into it to be honest so i have no, no knowledge of it and I made a decision. So I made a decision about 2008 that I was much more interested in Agile, and, and that's what got me into the whole thing. And I, I saw UML being used in such a non-Agile way that I kind of washed my hands of it. And I've now bought into, so one of the things Agile says is favor 
code over documentation. It doesn't yes. say we're not going to do documentation, but it says the code is the thing that you're delivering and that should be the thing that you put your care and attention into. So I sort of quietly abandoned UML and I don't generally use it. And do you think there's any any particular instance now where you would want to use Yeah, as UML? I said, with, um, you give me a brand new problem and I don't know anything about it and I've got to talk to somebody who does know about it, UML's perfect. Right. Use cases, state charts, a domain class diagram, not a yes. detailed class diagram, but a domain class diagram works beautifully. So you've just explained that in what I think of as a very OO way, right? So the concept of domain classes, state is a very OO concept. If you were doing functional programming, mm -hmm. you know, is there a role for UML in functional programming? Yeah, I don't think what I've described there is object-oriented. It's just that I'm using models like, so I've mentioned a domain class diagram there, which is a UML class diagram. And for listeners who've not used UML, but you probably know about Java classes, so it's a way of capturing classes. But I'm not, th I'm not thinking on those terms at all. I'm thinking in the real world. So I, I'm thinking like, like the guy was talking about previously, the guy that you were talking about. Some people, developers like myself, think in terms of classifications of things. Not, not object-oriented in any, in any technical sense, but it's just that I'm working in a domain that I don't understand, um, whatever it is. Give me an example. Um, manufacturer of sweets. Manufacturer of Candies for our don't know the first thing about that, but there's going to be classes of objects in that, in, you know, the, the terms that people use, in other words. I'm just building a dictionary, really, with that diagram. So the business people I talk to are going to be using terms like, oh, you know, I've got a bad example because I can't think of any jargon terms. That well, are. different types of sugar, for example, that might go into your Beautiful. candies. So we've got <laughs> sucrose and fructose and yes. all those sorts of Corn things. Corn syrup. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand any of that, but I can classify it and I can capture it on a picture. Now, yeah, you know and I know that if we're doing an object-oriented design from that, then that may well inform the ultimate design. Might do. Right. Actually, one of the founders of, one of the, you know, the early proponents of object orientation is sometimes credited as the inventor. Says so that was, he had no, it, it's a complete misinterpretation to think that OO is about modelling the real world. So that's a thing <laughs> to think about. But I'm not really saying that. I'm just saying even if you're doing a functional design or you're implementing it in assembly language, I don't care about any of that. Before you start implementing, you've got to have some level of understanding of what the jargon terms are. And I'm just saying that's a picture that will allow you to capture some of those jargon terms. No, no objects involved, really. And state, that is, that's just a, a real-world concept. I'm not talking about mutable state inside okay. a computer. I'm just saying that things in the real world change over time. So, so you're separating now completely UML from being something that aids you to create code to something that aids you to understand a business exactly. problem, which is interesting. Exactly. So, because I, and actually that's changed my thinking then, because certainly I came into this conversation, knowing we were going to talk about UML today, very much with that view that it's a way of allowing you to design an object-oriented system. Mm -hmm. And actually I did a quick search online to say, you know, what's the use of UML in a functional system? And found a very interesting Stack Overflow post where they they said no uml has a, sorry functional programming has a different yes. modeling language it's called mathematics and oh. I thought that was quite a, oh, wow. <laughs> yes i mean it was obviously done as a rather sarcastic but it had the most votes um yeah and uh, yeah interesting as a thing but so the so for modern developer actually the reason why you need to or you should have at least a, a general overview of uml is because it's a useful way of capturing a business requirement and helping that level of understanding of the business requirement before you start yeah but then actually, of course, if you're going to be doing test-driven development, you're going to be growing that business requirement exactly, over yeah. time. Yeah. Okay. So the, the, the models that I would build sort of become, I mean, they're useful documents, but favouring the code over documentation, as you've said. And uh, those documents, we can almost throw them in the bin once we understand things. You yes. wouldn't really throw them in the bin. You'd keep them for new joiners, and, and, and you'd, you'd certainly revisit the models when some major shift in that industry happens and so on. But that's the way I would go. And that's why day-to-day -day we don't really use it because we're not currently involved with going into brand new projects where we don't understand the domain. 
But, um... So, but looking at where we have done that kind of work, and I'm thinking particularly to when the European Union brought in a whole new complex set of VAT rules, mm-hmm. and we had to come up with how do we implement those rules within our business requirements yeah. and our logic. Um, you know, even now, if we have a change, if, if, if one of those rules changes and we need to go and change our code, yep. you know, we, we would go back to that original documentation, which some of it is possibly UML. I don't think a lot of it was, but yeah. th- there is still that need for that documentation because it was about, we've got to remind ourselves of what the original requirements were. I still say probably, just to guess, but probably the unit tests were built for that. That's are going true, to be more yes. descriptive than the diagrams would be. But that's just an example. Yeah, absolutely. They, they could be. Yeah, the, what the unit tests, I guess, don't give you, though, is, is necessarily is, the, is the, the, the flow. Because they're testing units of calculation, they're not giving you that logical flow. And, of course, if you can remember, we wrote it knowing it was going to flow in a particular way. Actually, if it's that flow is changing, that's yeah. the bit the documentation So you have an issue about 14 diagrams. I can't remember the exact number. I, I would recommend that any developer... I mean, one... The, the one you've just mentioned there, flow, there is a, there's a diagram called the activity diagram. It's just a flow chart. We call them flow charts from the <laughs> 1960s or whatever. Um, and, you know, anybody walking off the street could understand a flow chart. There's no need to go on a training course to no. learn about that. And that's what you'll find most of UML is you don't really need a train. If anybody who has been on my training, <laughs> UML training course in the 2000s, are sending in for a refund. Sadly, <laughs> the money has been spent, so you can't. Well, in but, those days, you probably charged tuppence halfpenny, didn't you? So well, actually, no. To be fair, most of that UML training course wasn't about that. It was about how you pull it all together and and what kind of process should you use here. So, you know what we've just described there: understanding the upfront requirements and then and then going and, and concentrating on the code. All that was in the course. So yes, it was valuable. Yes, but. Um, the diagrams themselves you could pick up in no time. So we often on our training courses we'll put a caption up and we're using UML and we often don't even bother to say this is because people will just infer. Yes. So the microservice course, for example, first picture on that course is an overall architecture of how all the components fit together. It's quite complicated, but the UML is not even worth. No, and actually, I think we've said that is that one of the nice things about UML is you don't need to know it to have a reasonable. You can you can look at a picture and have a pretty good understanding without any UML knowledge, Definitely. and I think that's one of its strengths. Well, you could um, you could very easily draw a UML picture and get the arrows the wrong way around, for example, when you're drawing it, and to somebody who knows UML, that would give them completely the wrong ideas. So yes, it is actually worth doing a bit of studying. Um, and I think on one of the courses I remember saying, do you know what, I'm not sure about that arrow, it possibly should be the other way around. I, remember, <laughs> I can't remember which called probably microservice deployment. And um, I, was, I was actually reading a design document just yesterday, so I'm working on a reactive training course at the minute, which might not happen. We could have a talk about that if you want, but it's certainly going to be delayed, I think. But I was reading a design document where they were explaining how on the old model, if you send a request to a server, it's blocking. So you've got to wait for the response to come back. And they'd use the UML sequence diagram to show this. And there's a bit of syntax on the sequence diagram which shows basically wait times. Mm-hmm. It's pompously in UML called the focus of control, but it, it shows where you're blocked. And whoever drew this diagram were trying to explain about blocking they'd got the syntax totally wrong. <laughs> and they were basically showing it totally asynchronous. Oh, right. <laughs> and it needed, I, I spent a good half hour looking at it and squinting at it and then realised, yeah, they've they've just banged that into a case tool. Something like Enterprise Architects, I think they'd use. And that will just make guesses of where these blocks are. Right. And they've not even, they probably didn't even realise what that block meant. But <laughs> because I, I can read that diagram, I got completely the wrong idea from it. So... Oh, wow. I suppose after I've been a bit less say fair all the way through this thing, you don't really need to learn it. I'm sorry, you probably do need to. Oh well, okay. <laughs> Should we do a course on it? That's a 
We've had it quite a few over the years, people saying, are you going to do a UML course? Do you know, it's, 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 it's a challenging one because it would be very different from the other kind of courses we do, as in it would need to obviously be a lot more picture based. I know you're quite keen to try and have the ability to be able to draw things yeah. on camera, which I'm less keen on, but you're more of an artist than me. Not, so. at, all. <laughs> Not at all, but I think freehand drawing, there's a lot of our competitors, because we have competitors, you know. We do, They're all yes. rubbish, but well, yeah, <laughs> they exist. And I do, I do find when it's a very common thing now for them to draw straight mm. on, and it always looks bad, really bad. And, and I think there's, there's, with just a little bit of extra work, it would just look more organic, it would look more natural. Yes. And um, it would probably be quicker than the animations that we do, which are a bit clunky, but, you know, they take yes. a heck of a long time. They do, time. they do. Okay, well, let, let's keep, let's have that one. Let's think about that. I mean, I think it's, you know, maybe a short course on the essentials of UML that, you know. I think it might be the one we keep circling around this and we don't yeah. get anywhere with it, but I think it might be the one where we actually record in, in Vision. And I can see the room that we're in now. I could imagine having a camera there and the developers, you know, arguing over a diagram yes. or whatever. I think. Might be a joint effort, might that be the one. way we have to go, yeah. We'll have a think about that. Okay, but should we talk about, you mentioned reactive might be yeah. delayed or not happening. It's a, reactive's a difficult area because it's a, it's a bit like Wild West at the minute and it's a changing area. And I'm not really getting very far with it right now. I think, as of today, my thinking is I'm going to build a course showing how spring what spring five support for reactive is okay they've got their own interpretation of reactive and i think that will do for now okay uh we need to do far more than we do on on concurrency and that kind of thing and at least it's a toe in the water uh i'm finding a lot of the frameworks to be very they're very mathematical and i want to get a practical, you know, a real good working example. And right. I'm behind on it. Mm. But I think you're doing well with your So, well, so I'm on module two of Java Web Development and I've, it's probably at halfway recorded now. I've made a decision. Actually, it's more than halfway. All I've got left to do is three chapters, which are covering Ajax uh, web service, sorry, Ajax web services, uh, and asynchronous servlets. Right. It might be four chapters. Um, but I've decided originally I was thinking that I, I would put a couple of chapters on the end covering uh, the Java 9 part of web yep. development. So that is uh, the Java 9 way of doing web sockets and possibly something about the new HTTP client class, Great. which is more about consuming a website than building one. Great. I've actually decided I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stop module two before those. Great. There may in the future be a module three that covers the Java 9 okay. bits. I don't want to do it now for two reasons. One is that I don't know it, so it's going to delay things and I have to learn it. But also... I am using Java 8 and I don't want to upgrade to Java 9, let me be honest, just yet. Um, I think there's too many things I'm supporting, too many things I'm doing in Java 8. Um, I, I want to leave it a few months first. So if you want Java 9 stuff on that side, please shout out, please do tell us. But I, I'm not saying it'll never happen, but I'm not going to do it just yet. So I'm going to stop module two where we originally planned to stop it actually, uh, which means I would hope, I know on the website it says due late November, I think. Absolutely, we should be on track for that. Um, I then, I guess we're looking at, I know I keep promising this, we need to do something on JSF. I've had a couple oh. more people asking, but <laughs> I only say it to get that reaction from you, Richard. But I'm looking at, you know, maximum of a couple of hours, just enough to get you started on JSF. And then we can close that one off. And I think Spark, hopefully, might be next. It will, yeah. Um, <laughs> but JSF, can't we just bin it? We've got material on JSF. If people ask for it, we could take it off the site. And if people ask for it, give them that under the table. We need to be, as a company, we need to be clear about what we like and what we dislike. People want guidance from us. I know there's two models, basically. Some customers are, look, my project's using this and I want you to show me it. I yep. don't care whether it's good or bad, my project's using it. But there are a lot of them saying, you know, well, what should we be learning and what should we... And I don't want... 
When I did, I was forced to write the JSS mm -hmm. course back in the, about the same time as I've been talking about on this video, by an investment bank. And I said to them at the time, look, I, I really don't like the look of JSF, but if you could, and they insisted and they twisted my arm. They said, you've trained yes. before, we like what you do, so come in and do it regardless. Okay, well, if you're going to pay me, I'll do it. So I did it. And um, then something like three years later, they booked me again for a Java course. And I went in and I bumped into one of the people in JSF course. And they said, oh, right, you're the guy who told us to use JSF, aren't you? <laughs> we, we abandoned it. Cost us a fortune. And your name's not very... And it, it was serious. It, you know, well, it was a... I, I, it was obviously a different project in that company who booked me for the Java course. And it had, it had blackened my name. I didn't recommend it, but... You're the front person for it, so you're going to be the one who gets the flack. And I don't want people saying, oh, you think JSF's good, don't you? So I would be delighted not to do a JSF course. And when I wonder about extracting the JSF chapters from the old course, yep. sticking them on as a module with a very clear message that says, and maybe in an introductory video that says, you know, we, we've had a few people ask for this. So we, we did this a long time ago. Mm -hmm. We're not going to redo it because there's too few people who are asking for it. But if it's useful for you, here it is. Yep. And, and it's that getting it back possible. on um, with no editing, just the old version. Because it's interesting that where we have had people ask for it, that's what we're doing. We're saying to them, look, we did have this old course we'll give you a copy and actually they never come back and ask questions so maybe it's satisfying that need um so let's yeah. have a think about that there's a slight might... problem with it in the that jsf that we did i mean it, although i don't like jsf if we're going to do it mm. we're going to do a good job of it yes um and unfortunately that jsf was a, a, a part of a bigger course so yes. we could get away with just doing two three chats and saying that's enough we'll move on to something else it was just to get your feet wet yes and actually i think since there's been newer versions of JSF, there are better ways to do what uh, we're doing on that. So it's kind of like old-fashioned JSF that we've got on there. And again, I don't want to look like we're... So we, we've got a problem there. I, I'm very that. persuadable to not do a JSF course, I'll be honest with you. It doesn't, it doesn't excite me. Um, well, let's, let's park it at least. Okay. You know, Spark is something that people are really demanding yes and we need because without that that that's kind of like the gateway into highly concurrent streaming all that sort yes of thing yeah that we we've not got enough of and i'm trying to get in there with reactive and until i've got you know if there was already a spark course it'd be a lot easier to then build some okay okay well look let's let's agree then that as soon as i've finished web development i'll start on spark um, oh, we'll work on that together, working definitely. on it together absolutely um because yes it may be that you'll record that we worked on the big the no sql course together and i think you recorded it and yeah and it yeah. worked quite nicely as a yeah. team so we'll have yeah. a think about that but i'll certainly start looking into spark then as my next yeah. next project the big question there is though do we do spark using java or do we use scala which is ooh, yeah. What's cool. your sense of a, here's enough Scala to be able to start doing Spark oh, course on any, Scala? Any Java developer with reasonable, you know, mm -hmm. if, you, if you just learnt Java last week, then you're going to find it difficult. But if you've got some reasonable experience, we're not going to do any hard Scala. It'll be classes and... Because I think that there's a, you know, actually, Scala's one of those things that even though you might not need it for your job or want to get a job in Scala, if you have a basic understanding of Scala, it, again, it elevates you as a level yeah. as a programmer. Yeah. So an introduction to Scala, Scala course, here's a get, getting started with Scala would be something that I think would be very popular. Yeah. Uh, and I know we've talked about doing something similar with Clojure and we've never got there, but just as a... That would be a vanity project, but Scala would Scala be is a, definitely, it yeah. It may be less relevant now because, um, so if you look at any of the reactive code, you've got Using a library like RxJava, which is one of the libraries that we might might put in the reactive course. That you know, comes from Netflix and other people. Um, there's basically two ways of working in it. You can use the Java 7, an earlier approach, which is you've got to work with anonymous inner classes. And you basically have like 13, 14 lines of code. And it looks absolutely horrible and it isn't readable. But if you're using Java 8, then you can use lambdas and everything turns into nice single lines of code. Now, that right. would be my reason for using Scala. So in all of the Spark code I've seen, you look at Spark Java and it just looks horrible. So you look at Scala and it's all one lines. What I'm not, forgive me, I should know this, but 
I'm sure you can use Spark functionally using Java 8, in which case there'd be less of a burning need, possibly, for Scott. Well, let's look into that as part of, of uh, working out how we're going to do the course. I think we're running out of time. Great so stuff. That's all coming soon. So a funny topic, that UML, in that it's something we've kind of semi-abandoned in our professional career, and, uh, and I think the industry, in a way, we've... Uh, studiously is that a word <laughs> we, we very carefully avoided mentioning much about agile on this podcast because we want to do another podcast where we just talk about agile so that Absolutely. will come in the future possibly not the next one but we want it quite soon and that's really i think the summary of this discussion is we're far more into agile these days although we don't follow any prescriptive we don't do anything like scrum no, no. So we and could do with an expert coming into the podcast. Talking about, about tribes and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, basically project management with Agile yes. is a whole different topic. But as yes. a developer, Agile is not complicated and it shouldn't be complicated. No. We'll have a separate podcast about that. Good. We'll try to make it two weeks ago. I think it's been three weeks since the last one. But anyway. Yes, we'll do it when we can. Just imagine all these tens of thousands of people sat next to their Echo Dots. <laughs> Constantly saying, play the latest podcast and they're disappointed little broken hearts and there isn't a new one well i know that our marketing team have set up today's podcast as an event on facebook <laughs> yes. i don't know where, how many uh, people have been watching that event we to were, see when it would come we out were really but disappointed we didn't quite break the ten thousand attendees so we didn't we didn't Okay. So next time we might next get time we'll we'll hopefully get there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, if you've been listening, thank you very much. Comments welcome as always, and hopefully see you in a few weeks at the next one. In a few weeks' time. Great to talk to you, Matt. And you. See you next time. Cheers. Bye. <laughs>